my initial thought, which I'm not going to stand by, is that the entire new Magic Mike movie revolves around land use. Hello, welcome to Densely Speaking, conversations about cities, economics, and law. My name is Greg Schill, and I am a professor of law at the University of Iowa. Joined by my co-host, Jeff Lynn. Hey, Greg. I'm Jeff Lynn. I'm an economist at the Philadelphia Fed. Really great to be here again with you, Greg. Likewise. And I'm so excited about our guest today. We are joined by Molly Brady, who is the Lewis Brandeis Professor of Law at Harvard Law School. She is an expert on property law and state and local government law, among other topics. She's written extensively on land use, including the private law dimension thereof. In a moment, we'll say what that means. And we're just so happy to have her today to talk about her article, Turning Neighbors into Nuisances in the Harvard Law Review. Welcome, Molly. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be here. So why don't you start, if you don't mind, by telling us what is private law and what are the fields of private law that you are looking at in this article? It sounds like a simple question, but it walks me into a lot of minefields. So I'll do my best to give kind of big picture answer. You can imagine the field of law is divided into private and public law. Private law deals with the rules that govern interactions between private individuals. Public law governs the interactions between governments and private individuals. So canonical public law subjects would be things like constitutional law or statutory interpretation. The canonical private law subjects are typically thought of as contracts, property, and torts, because contracts deal with, again, private party to private party voluntary agreements. Property deals with how private parties interact with things. Tort law often deals with duties and obligations arising out of relationships to other private parties in the world. For instance, I can't run into you with my car. That is a tort. So private law is, again, kind of about these subjects involving private citizens. Again, as I suggested at the outset, this is a really tricky category. There's been a lot written about whether there really is any coherence to this public-private law divide or whether it's all sort of collapsible into one versus the other. But that's a basic sense of how we think of the division. My understanding is the main claim of your article is that we should be paying a lot more attention to the role of private law in the development of land use policy in the United States. Is that a fair characterization? I think that's right, you know, because of course the giant in the room when it comes to land use public law side is zoning. And so lots of interest in sort of the development of zoning, how it came about. It's a little bit harder to do histories of private law because histories of public law, you can go to city council minutes, you can try to access other public records. Again, public law involves governments that tend to produce a lot of records and sometimes retain them. It's much harder to get a sense of the evolution of what private parties are doing and, again, their contracts between them 
for instance. And so I think that is generally both as a sort of historical claim and a normative forward-looking claim. I think the relationship between private land use law and public land use law is worth further examination. I think you can get a lot of the article that I've written is about sort of how private law foreshadowed some of the questions that would arise in the trajectory that led to widespread zoning. And I think even today, there's a lot of focus on getting rid of single family zoning, getting rid of parking minimums, getting rid of public law stuff, less about homeowners associations and other sort of private side entities that actually do a lot of regulation of land use but without any government authority behind them. So it's both sort of a backward and a forward looking claim. I think that's a great way to think about the two sides of your article, this historical claim and a forward-looking claim. One thing that I kind of want to start with is this forward-looking claim. If I'm a property owner and I want to do something with my property, build an apartment building, say, what are the implications of regulation by private law versus regulation by public law? Yeah, so regulation by public law, it's interesting to think of this, I think, in terms of consent, maybe. So if I'm uh, wanting to build an apartment, but my local government, city council, for instance, has passed a zoning ordinance that forbids me from doing that, I haven't directly said, yes, I want to be regulated in this way. But through concepts of representative governance, we say that those people represent all of us. And so they are passing, as long as they're reasonable regulations, we have to abide by them. With respect to private law, I think there's a little bit more of a dimension of consent, at least on the sort of the contract side. So I, if there were no law banning me from building an apartment, it's possible that I would have bound myself contractually, perhaps through something called a covenant, which is basically an agreement that we call in property law running with land. In other words, it follows the land from owner to owner, from seller to buyer to the next person down the chain. And so if I had, for instance, bought a property where my predecessor had agreed never to build an apartment building, I would have implicitly sort of consented to that restriction on myself. The other possible constraint from private law here is tort law, and that doesn't require consent in the same sort of sense, but it's nuisance law. So you can't use your property in a way that unreasonably interferes with the land uses of others. And so it's possible, although courts have tended not to find this, that I might build my apartment in such a way that it is unreasonably interfering with the rest of my neighborhood, whether by casting a giant shadow or something like that. These claims, again, tend not to succeed in nuisance, but that's a theoretical constraint too. In terms of the forward-lookingness here, is there a distinction in terms of the amenability of public versus private law in terms of reform or relaxing land use regulations? I don't think anyone here, particularly on the forward-looking side, I don't think anyone is wrong to be focusing their energy on zoning and public law, because that certainly is the major constraint right now. And I think my perspective is we should also be thinking about private law, particularly as an alternative that I expect to rise if public Mm -hmm. law plays a less significant role. This is outdated data at this point, but one in four Americans, more than that now, actually lives within a homeowners association, which is the dominant way that covenants are created and enforced now in the U.S. So again, covenants are agreements that run with land. They enable your neighbors or the homeowners association or some kind of residential association to enforce restrictions on you that can look like public law and indeed can in many cases go farther than public law. So the standard for public laws to be upheld and enforceable is some sort of reasonableness test, but 
Oddly enough, even unreasonable covenants get a lot of deference, which is why you hear stories of HOAs banning birdhouses or people sitting on benches in their front yards. You hear things that it would be sort of ludicrous to imagine a government doing, but they're allowed through covenant law. Again, lots of people live in these already. The other thing that I think is interesting, and this is anecdotal at this point, is definitely in places that are trying to do zoning change. So my former home of Charlottesville, Virginia, I have heard from friends there that as they've tried to liberalize zoning to address some of the housing shortages there, neighbors are going around to one another and trying to form homeowners associations because you can do this after the fact. And so they're saying, well, yeah, they might say that we have to allow duplexes, but we're going to sign an agreement among us. And as long as you satisfy the many, there are many technicalities of covenant law, but as long as you satisfy those, we can actually create an enforceable agreement that then will again bind anyone we sell to or will it to after our death. So I think this is something that we'll see more of as public law maybe plays a less significant role in at least some places in contributing to the housing shortage. I just want to rewind a little bit and bring out some of these nuances within private law, right? So, mm-hmm. so you mentioned that tort law can be a bar in the sense of the nuisance tort that could be brought by you if your neighbor, let's say, opens a factory. Yep. And maybe you can sue for a nuisance. But I think as you persuasively describe in the paper, that's not a very satisfying solution. You have to prove harm and you might have to wait for the harm to actually occur. If it's merely theoretical, it's going to be harder and so on. And so that was kind of an inferior technology from a landowner perspective in terms of ensuring quiet enjoyment of the land. And so hence the nuisance covenant, which is a weird thing. It's a hybrid, it's a contract term that runs with the land. I want to dwell on that in a minute to explain to folks just what that means a little bit. But it's a contract term that incorporates the tort of nuisance, right? But can go beyond it. What are some examples of ways that the nuisance covenant went beyond traditional tort nuisance. And what are the advantages from a landowner perspective in terms of both the rights that they have and the remedies that they can pursue? So the period in which we see the emergence of these things that I call nuisance covenants is about 1820s to 40s um, in there. I think the way that you set up the question is really helpful because What's the main constraint? You know, there's a lot happening in history at this time in terms of industrialization, urbanization. And so we're increasingly having land use conflicts that you didn't have in the 1750s, say. So nuisance exists to the tort to try to address some of these conflicts. But for exactly the reasons you say, it's not working terribly effectively. And I think probably the bigger problem is that it's hard to sue for an anticipatory nuisance unless the use is so obviously egregious. But there are a bunch of cases circa 1800 where people are about to build slaughterhouses and the neighbor's like, hey, this is definitely going to be a nuisance. Can we please stop this before it starts? And of course, the slaughterhouse operator says, I am about to operate the least offensive slaughterhouse that you have ever seen. And so some courts are sort of like, well, let's see if he does or if he doesn't. And then once the harm is underway, it's hard to put the genie back in the bottle, basically. And so nuisance is not doing the work. So some crafty lawyer, and I don't know who, has this idea that we can use, again, this kind of contract-like mechanism, the covenant, to try to control land uses. 
And so the nuisance covenant, again, bans basically a list of uses. It can just say, I promise never to engage in a nuisance use on my property, but it comes to be very specified over the course of the 19th century. So I promise I will not have a manufactory of varnish vitriol ink or turpentine or carpentry or cabinet maker, you know, long lists of things that will be banned or any other nuisance. And this is what really kind of led me to be interested in what was going on here, because it seems weird to have a contract not to do a tort. Why would you have this innovation? You know, we don't run around making contracts like you will not hit me at least ordinarily. But the reason that these seem to have taken off, I think one you've already mentioned, which is specification. So now if I'm the neighbor to the slaughterhouse, I can just ban slaughterhouses and nobody's going to ask, well, is this a reasonable slaughterhouse? So they're going to look at the contract and say, they're banning slaughterhouses, not just offensive ones. So that's nice. It's got specification, but also there's a little bit of flexibility built in, particularly in those, and it's all of them, I think, that have sort of lists of banned uses plus any other nuisance use. So now that invites a court to sort of think about, well, are uses like this nuisances? So I think those are probably the main reasons. There's also a very technical reason, which has to do with the distinction between law and equity. So whether you law basically constrains your remedies to often things like damages, equity could have forward-looking injunctions, basically banning people from doing something in the future. That's really important here, right? You want to prevent the slaughterhouse from opening. You're not right. interested in getting a check every month to compensate you. Right. And so it was hard to get an injunction against a nuisance without first adjudicating who had title to property. This is a very strange feature, but the way I would think about it now or try to explain it to a layperson is at the time there was some discomfort about, let's use the canonical nuisance example of a factory next to a farm or something, whether the factory, if it's allowed to emit smoke, whether we should think of that as actually a property right that they had over the farm. So do we need to go to the courts of law first to adjudicate whether they have that property right to emit smoke across someone else's land. And then once title is settled in the courts of law, which is where that had to be determined, then they would have to go to the courts of equity to say, now we want to either try to enjoin that use or whatever. So it required multiple strands of litigation. And so that was annoying if you're trying to abate a nuisance. Whereas a nuisance covenant, just the mere breach of it or the anticipated breach of it was immediate grounds to go to equity court and be able to prevent the thing from happening on a forward-looking basis. So for this kind of technical jurisdictional reason, I think also for these benefits of specification and flexibility, I think they all contribute to its spread. That makes good sense. So the covenant takes you out of tort into contract and the fact that you're in a contract also enables you to go to a court of equity instead of a court of law, which of course later those merge. It's just simpler to, okay. and therefore cheaper, which means that these things can take off, which mm -hmm. they do. And I want to hear about the history of that. What about this specification thing? Is it, do apartments end up being in that list? If they're not in that list, do people try to argue that they're implicitly in that list? Yeah. So one of the most fun things, and again, private law histories are hard to do. And I was writing this paper also during COVID. So I wasn't able to do as much archival research as I would have liked. So a lot of this comes from basically the wonderful fact that 
courts often excerpted in full deed covenants when they were being litigated. And so they would put way more information than they needed to, which is how I got to look at a bunch of these lists across time of what sorts of uses were being banned. So there's change over time. There's also stability. Again, it's a complex, nuanced story. So some things stay way past when they should. I'm like sort of trying to imagine why slaughterhouses, especially once they were being regulated to the extent they were, remain in these nuisance covenant lists. But you see uses, for instance, around the Civil War, a lot more banning of gunpowder-related manufactories. You see in the era of temperance, the addition of saloons and other things like that to the lists of what counts as a nuisance in these nuisance covenants, these lists of banned uses. You start to see the tenement in the 1840s, 50s, 60s emerge in this list. And one of the things that I think is interesting here is later in time, you do see the apartment added, but there's a lot of litigation about basically whether an apartment is a tenement so that it falls within these nuisance covenants and is therefore banned, even if it is sort of a middle-class apartment as opposed to tenements, which were traditionally associated with poor conditions, with immigrant populations. So you do see sort of litigation about whether apartments count as tenements and interesting cases about that. Later again in history, a couple of them do get added. But one of the really interesting things, and I actually hope to write, I think it's going to be like a short piece because I can't figure out how to make it a full piece about this, is you see actually a shift from long lists of banned uses to what's permitted, which was an uncomfortable move in covenant law for, again, a technical reason is that law was very comfortable, property law, Anglo-American property law, very comfortable with negative restraints on what a person could do with their land, very anxious about affirmative promises to do something with your land, because that looked like a little bit more of a interference with the person's freedom rather than I'm not going to do X, Y, and Z, saying I am absolutely going to do X, what looked like a bigger ask. So there's a little bit of discomfort, and that's why you have these kind of long negative covenants. But again, crafty lawyers start saying, well, instead of just listing everything that's not going to be there, why don't I write only single family houses in these covenants? And so I think you really can see in these covenants the emergence of even just the single family notion. It's a little uncomfortable at first because it takes a few steps to get to single family where they're like, ah, darn, we drafted it wrong and it'll let a duplex in or whatever. Or you have some funny cases that are along those lines. But these long lists of banned uses eventually give way to lists of what is actually permitted. Let me pick up a few things that I've heard you say so far. So one, you predicted some substitution as land use, public law land use regulations are relaxed to private law forms like HOAs. And historically, you mentioned how in some dimensions, at least, private law covenants seem to have reduced uncertainty, maybe made abatement of nuisances faster or more certain. In some senses, that's a superior instrument. Mm -hmm. And yet, I want to contrast that a little bit with the kind of what I took as a theme in the historical section of your article, which is that these things weren't necessarily thought of or used as substitutes, private law and public law instruments. They were complements, maybe. Private law shaped the development of public law. What is your story on the twin developments here? Yeah, so again, it's complex. So let me go back to kind of where I started, where I said nuisance wasn't doing the job. So here come covenants to try to address these negative land uses, consequences of industrialization and urbanization. Covenants and zoning have the same relationship in a way, which is basically covenants come under fire for 
pretty much two reasons, I think. One is their patchwork. So New York City is a great place to study this because it's sort of an epicenter of everything urban even 200 years ago. But people find it frustrating that these four blocks have different restrictions than that six blocks. And so they're annoyed by the patchwork nature of it. And there's some great articles in the New York Times saying, well, it's a, you can have a slaughterhouse on 40th, but not, not a bakery on 41st. The patchwork nature is frustrating what is the nascent city planning profession. And so I think that's a piece of it. The other thing is that there's a canon of construction in particularly covenant law, so these contracts that run with property and bind successors, that is meant to maximize the free use of property. So covenants are to be construed narrowly in the event of ambiguities. And so I've already mentioned that people are starting to bring litigation, particularly circa 1900, about whether a middle-class apartment is a tenement within the meaning of a nuisance covenant. So we have a covenant that says on our respective properties, no varnish vitriol, et cetera, et cetera, no tenements or any other nuisance. And now somebody wants to put up the Dakota, a fancy circa 1900 apartment building, and the neighbor doesn't want it. So they say, oh, this falls within the meaning of tenement because both are big, tall buildings and there's litigation about this. But courts, when there's ambiguity, are saying, no, apartments are not banned. A tenement is something different than an apartment. If we're not sure, this is what we're going to go with. And so they're not fully effective either at restricting forward-looking land uses. So even there's a little bit of flexibility to encompass new nuisance uses, I think the apartment really tests um, tests it and leads to calls for public law to replace. So to one degree, there's sort of a zoning replacing covenants, but it's an awkward replacement because as you observe, out of one side of their mouth, um, a lot of the advocates of zoning are saying, we need this because covenants are so inadequate. But on the other side, they're saying, but also they're still going to exist and whichever is more restrictive is going to control. So they do work in tandem, but also there's a kind of replacement because they're not fully effective due to their patchwork nature and these canons of construction. So the relationship is also, I think, a little bit more, even more complicated than I've already indicated, which is that I think a lot of debates about sort of what counts as harmful or taking place in private law, when they're talking about like what makes an apartment bad, that is being discussed in these covenant cases before city planners are talking about what makes an apartment so offensive. So there's also that sort of rhetorical lineage that I think you can trace through these cases. That was a fascinating history that I think you brought to light in your article, which is how was it that we sort of arrived at the conclusion that uh, apartments were were nuisances or were harmful to neighbors. It wasn't a straightforward evolution. What were some of the key steps or events along the way? Yeah, it's sort of a perfect storm, I think, in a way that's super interesting. And again, it was kind of poignant to write this during COVID and 100 years later and recognize the ways that, for instance, the just confluence of World War I and the 1918 flu pandemic and these other things sort of led to evils being associated with multifamily housing in a new way. So I'll say a little bit more about that emergence. I will just also say quickly, one of the other motivations for this paper is that, especially having taught property law now for eight years or however long, it has always bothered me in that canonical Euclid versus Ambler Realty case, which is a case that upholds zoning as a legitimate use of the police power, that apartments are just discussed as though they're near enough to nuisances or like a pig in the parlor, when as someone who has also studied nuisance law, that's just not true. So 
there for me it was a little bit of a gap between the way they're discussed in Euclid and the truth of tort law that I think this helps to fill in to show how they did come to be considered near enough to nuisances to being worthy of regulation. So some of the things that I think lead to the kind of perfect storm, I think as in Euclid generally, there's a mix of motives, right? So there are legitimate fears about things like fires and whether people will be able to safely escape from taller and taller buildings if they're living in tall multifamily housing. But there's also a lot of sort of racial panic and panic over disease, misunderstandings about how disease spreads. So not just a feeling that people will spread disease by being close together in apartment buildings, but also the notion that there's insufficient sunshine on the streets and that caverns are breeding disease when you have two apartment buildings next to each other. Again, sort of race suicide is a really prevalent idea. The idea that basically white families are not having enough children and immigrant and other families are having too many. And so living in multifamily housing is viewed as contributing to that because people are less likely to get fresh air and have big families. And so that's all whipped up in here. I think there's a great case I found where this judge sort of panics and worries about a woman with a small dog, this, the height of immorality. Oh no, she's walking outside with her tiny dog. Plus again, as I said, World War One, where there's even a notion of to have healthful children to fight our next war they need yards. So it's this just like totally crazy confluence of world events. Again, lawyers, I think, going in and making these arguments to try to make these types of uses look more offensive, either under covenant law or under eventually a public law in order to make them subject to regulation. In thinking about the sort of supplanting of land use regulation by public law in place of covenants, you tell a persuasive story about how nuisance covenants, which were better than the tort suit for a nuisance, but not quite as good as zoning, but that things like zoning were legally dubious in the late 19th and early 20th century because of limitations on what we today call the police power. Can you say a bit about that? In other words, why didn't these powerful real estate interests go in 1890 to City Hall and demand something like what we today call zoning, since it is clearly easier and cheaper than adopting nuisance covenants a la carte in an ad hoc format with every real estate transaction? Yeah, so it is a great question. There are, there are some cases that start in, you know, there's there's two I sometimes teach about a little bit, either in property or land use. One is Welch versus Swayze, and the other is Hadachek versus Sebastian. These are cases that come up before Euclid, and basically they're not about zoning, but they're about things like height restrictions for fire purposes, or banning brickyards in one part of LA and allowing them in the other. And so you have a couple people who are saying, this is unreasonable because it is an interference with my property rights. So that's one piece of this. To remember, this is an era, you know, particularly come Euclid time, we have the Lochner era as lawyers think about it, where it's like the apex of free contracting and intense view of the inviolability of property rights. So fears about this being a really serious intrusion on property rights, one piece for sure. Interestingly, again, I think the sort of development here in which covenants actually enhance the value of property makes this look less like an interference with property rights because 
because now people are like, well, the values are going up. So that can't really be an interference to the same extent we might have thought it was a while ago. I think also before the turn of the century, there was a worry that zoning was really just about aesthetics, which has always been a fairly uncomfortable police power purpose. It's still the case, I believe, less, although the last article that definitely did an empirical study of this is, I think, 2006. But some jurisdictions do not consider aesthetics alone to be a valid police power purpose. You have to have aesthetics plus something else that's a truly traditional kind of health, safety, welfare justification. And so the idea that zoning was really about aesthetics rather than some of these other types of health safety concerns is definitely a worry earlier on also. The other thing that's just definitely mixed in here is the city planning profession and their organization. And it's really fascinating. You can read all the digitized annual meetings, basically, of of the urban planners as they sort of start to come together and strategize on a nationwide level with how to make this take off. And so I think that's another piece of this is that it takes some time for them to get organized and to really develop a, a good strategy and pathway and an industrial backdrop for them to be able to do planning on a macro scale. Another entry point here into your article is some of the recent attention on racial covenants, restrictions and deeds, prohibiting certain racial or ethnic groups or national origin from residing in particular places. Can you put those racial covenants in the context of more generally these private covenants for land use restrictions? It's fascinating to me that covenants basically as a land use tool evolve out of leases, I think. So you can imagine in glorious old England, there's a lot more leases of property than the sort of typical, we'd say like freehold interests you have here in the U.S., and so people who are landlords are putting in you know, these 99-year leases, you know, you shall not do X, you shall not do Y, and then people end up subleasing within it. And so promises end up running with the land, but within lease law. In both England and the U.S., there's this pushing that lawyers do where they now migrate this again to this covenant running with the land, where it's a contract that party A and party B enter into, but when they sell to party C and party D, it continues to bind those parties, even though they're not in sort of a landlord-tenant relationship. But that's a push, sort of doctrinal evolution that really starts in 1700s, but becomes really useful when an architectural style or a planning style, I could say, becomes popular, which is the garden square, the idea of sort of a row of houses surrounding a often private garden. And a covenant is a really good way to make sure that the people that are joining that garden take care of it and that control and make sure some industrial use doesn't go in that would affect everyone in the neighborhood. So to me, the history of the, it's really an antecedent of the subdivision and the history of the covenant go together. So it's about 1820 when some of those start taking off. It's really quick that people start trying to use these for racial exclusion. 1820s, 1830s, as we see the first garden squares it's the 1840s when we see the first racial restriction. It comes from near me in Boston. It comes from Brookline, Massachusetts, in a development called Linden Place. The developer Thomas Aspinwall banned 
Black residents and natives of Ireland um, in Linden Place. And that spreads really quickly. Again, I think there's a nascent planning profession, even in that period, although it's not quite as organized, or at least a nascent real estate lawyers organization, or there's communication among them, I should say. And so that spreads really quickly, and it takes almost 100 years for it to be invalidated in a decision called Shelley versus Kramer in the U.S. Supreme Court in 1948. So definitely the history of the deed restrictions, restrictions on land uses is very baked in with this history of attempts to use these private law devices for racial exclusion as well. This is a question for both of you, Greg and Molly, coming as a non-lawyer. What I've heard so far in terms of the historical development of land use policy in America is a lot of historical contingency, a lot of creative lawyering, And I guess one thing I'm wondering is if this weren't a country built on common law traditions, would that have mattered for land use policy? And obviously that's a very open and big question and maybe one that we could never get a satisfactory answer to, but I'm kind of interested in your views on that. My armchair sort of just quick react to that is even as opposed to England, although we Anglo-American definitely has similarities, our beloved of property rights is really unique. And our constitutional protection for property rights is fairly unique. And so I think that has to be considered in sort of the broader history of land use here is this idea that both we have a lot of deference to what property owners want to do, but then we also with zoning, end up having pretty major restriction on property owners' rights, but also one that enhances values. Property owners are the ones who participate most in local government. So just this love of property owners. And also, I guess, the way that our state and local governments are structured has led to to some of what we see. We can even trace some of the respect for local governments to the fact that Massachusetts had town meetings where every white freeholder got to participate and sort of the antecedent of the home voter, (laughs) to use the sort of home voter hypothesis officials article notion, but this idea that they're local, they're expert in what's best for their community really runs deep. Another thing too, sorry, this is a ramble in response to what you asked, but one thing I find fascinating is particularly for land use wonks like myself, the notion of the character of the neighborhood, neighbors talking about, well, we just, it's the special character of this 1960s subdivision that matters so much. The character of the neighborhood, that phrase comes from nuisance. Nuisance law, a bunch of very old cases talk about, well, how we decide whether it's a nuisance, we consider the character of the neighborhood. And so that also shows just sort of some of even the rhetoric around land use is derived from our common law heritage. I've been interested in this question myself, and certainly Molly's response is persuasive to me. Maybe if there's a listener out there who's an expert in comparative property law, come tell us about how things work in France, which has a rich tradition of property law, some of which we borrow, but obviously as a a civil law country. I would love to hear that. I think additional evidence for Molly's explanation is that we have so vastly expanded on the types of instruments that we've been talking about so far in today's conversation over the past century. So the HOA is probably the big innovation, but I would add to that historical preservation, of course, zoning, parking requirements, other things that they look like regulation of land use, and obviously they are, but they are also a way of freezing a certain definition of property interests which is exactly what you would do with a covenant. So in that sense, they both, they giveth and they take away and they have property-like attributes, even though they don't, they aren't quote property law. 
Yeah. And another, just a, a private law device to add to that list too, which part of why I love teaching this stuff is that I don't think there's any clean answers. <laughs> um, so conservation easements are, well, they're, they're, it's a misnomer. <laughs> Those are secretly covenants, as I tell my first year students. But conservation easements, which in some states, that's how they do historic preservation. So rather than through historic preservation regulation, it's through sort of preservation easements. And so yeah, that's another device that I think illustrates the sort of relationship between private and public law today and how we think about the way they work together. If we could, I'd like to turn our attention forward, looking to the second direction of the article. And let's just assume that the momentum that's been building over the past decade or so towards a liberalizing public constraints on land use development, like zoning, parking requirements, building codes increasingly, that just continues and maybe even picks up. Earlier, Molly, you mentioned that some folks have started looking at this already in terms of how to substitute for zoning. That to me is a really interesting place where the historical work that you do in this article connects to today. So for example, some of the barriers that you talk about from 100, 150 years ago, you know, don't exist anymore. It used to be really hard to form covenants. I mean, you had to have privity and all these things, which means you'd have to do a real estate transaction between everybody who's going to be bound, had to be a party to the transaction to initiate the covenant. But HOAs provide opportunities for ongoing rulemaking, right? And you don't need unanimous consent and you can form them, you know, even after the houses are built and things. So how could we think about these restrictions looking forward, given the new flexibility in property law? Yeah. I mean, I think this is a big reason of why I'm interested because I do think the private law mechanisms are some cases more durable if they are enacted pursuant to what are now the much more minimal requirements. So again, used to be, oh, we're not sure if people can make affirmative promises. Now we're very sure people can make aggressive affirmative promises about what they're going to do with their property. As you said, used to be, you know, it's just sort of what you signed on to. Now there's forward-looking, the ones that, that they can pass on an ongoing basis. So that's part of what I'm thinking about as the next step if things continue to liberalize on the public law side. I think the other thing that's scary or interesting, so covenants are hard to get rid of. So there are a bunch of termination methods. If I were forcing you through my 1L property class, I would talk about 11. But one way is everybody has to agree that's very unlikely. Now I look at The Economist. If you have large numbers of people, for instance, a homeowners association that you're going to have everyone sign off on abrogating it, you could maybe have the HOA terminate it depending on whatever their powers are. But the ways that if you're sort of an outsider just trying to get rid of it by litigation, you have to claim, oh, changed circumstances or the covenant is against public policy. And we don't have that much great law on what those things mean. So I think there will likely be some interesting cases about this in the next couple decades, particularly, I would say, covenants against public policy. I actually worked on a case that was very interesting on this, I think, involving the Lee Monument in Richmond, where there was a covenant basically requiring the state to forever keep a monument up to Robert E. Lee. And the argument that we tried to push as authors of an amicus brief, as well as the Solicitor General's office, was that this was against public policy, given intervening changes in Virginia since the 1870s when this covenant had been put in. But there's not a lot of published decisions on this. There's an assumption, I think, on the part of legislators that if they pass a law abrogating a covenant, saying that it's against public policy, that that's the end of it. It terminates the covenant. So as an example of a state that is proactively thinking about HOAs, California, when it passed its accessory dwelling unit law, basically permitting them in more places in California, it also abrogated 
HOA covenants to the contrary. So said you can't have a covenants within your HOA that ban ADUs. Now, again, if your homeowner association is trying to enforce that against you, then you could say it's against public policy because of the, you know, the state's public policy is now pro-ADU. But then there's, I think, another interesting argument. I think it's probably a loser, but that, again, I expect a litigation on, which is I could see someone saying, well, I have a property interest in that covenant. And you, California, by destroying my property interest and having no ADUs have taken my property. And so, yes, you can pass the regulation, but you have to pay me for my loss of the benefit of that covenant. So there's an interesting kind of mashup of covenant termination. What counts as public policy? Do you need something as strict as a explicit abrogation? Or is it good enough to say our state has been liberalizing zoning? And so now it's against the rules or it's against public policy to have more restrictive covenants. If there's going to be just interesting cases about this as well as the takings angle, I think. I'd love to dig in a little bit on methods here. So most law review articles do not engage with history as deeply as yours does. And also it's rare to use so many primary sources from private law, especially ones that are 200 years old or close to it. You talked a little bit about some of the challenges there, especially during COVID. I would just love to hear, how did you go about this? And how are you finding, even the cases, set aside the underlying documents, a lot of these cases from the 1850s, they're not online. Are you having to go to libraries to get old reporters? And then to the extent you were able to access original covenants, is it, were they all in opinions or you know, are there other ways? Just take us through your process, if you would. Yeah. So because, again, this was written, I think, either entirely or mostly during true lockdown, I really relied on publicly available sources. So some of the cases that, again, are the easy ones are, of course, within Westlaw and Lexis, but I spend a lot of time with digitized old books. That includes here, interestingly, these form books. Now we have this, I guess, in corporate law where there's sort of a form you can start with for a purchase and sale agreement or whatever, but there was people publishing model covenants that you could start from. And so that gave me kind of a language of search that then I could use in publicly available documents from Google Books, Trust, et cetera, to try to locate these things as well as Westlaw. I also was very lucky in many respects here because I stumbled onto this, to the first nuisance covenant, basically, that I found because I was interested in this change circumstances, how many covenants were terminated for change circumstances in New York. I started doing sort of a read of 19th century covenants cases, and I just kept reading these lists that looked kind of similar. And I was like, well, there's a story here. I don't really know what's going on. So that made it, again, easier to find them once I kind of knew what the boilerplate looked like. Generally, I think deeds, which these are contained within, are one of the most underappreciated sources that property people can work with. And that will be on my grave, probably, because I um, have now, I think, written at least three pieces that involve boilerplate in deeds and what it can tell us about intervening changes in law and society. What's amazing, too, is, again, I was hamstrung with this piece by COVID in terms of being able to do archival research. So we had to rely a lot on basically locating these things through public documents or digitized documents. But land records are open to the public. So where I where I got my start in loving property law was the vault of the New Haven land records. <laughs> so my property professor assigned us as a task that we had to go trace back a property. It could be a restaurant or an apartment. I was in law school. 
the time and had to trace it back to transfers. And so I walk into this land record vault, going to look up a restaurant. I trace it back to transfers. And I look over just sort of this very bizarre vault. And I look over across the shelves and I see that the books of deeds from the 1660s are just sitting there and covered in dust, but I could just go touch them. And I had just finished college where you'd have to have like 15 gloves and five curators to look at anything. And so there's just incredibly interesting stories, I think, in these deeds, again, in sort of transitions and boilerplate, in even just who's transferring to who. You can tell records of eminent domain also by finding how cities acquired their land or sold their land or distributed it. So I'm a huge deed nerd. So I'm glad that I was able to do this. Ideally, there will be spinoffs from this, one of the things I would like to do, because I think it will end up being interesting, is tracing what was considered a market covenant in different places and the first zoning ordinance. I have a suspicion that whatever was the market covenant in many places became the first zoning ordinance and or helped contribute to what it looked like. And so that would be another way of showing just the, the interdependency between these things. So that would require, I think, a little more archival research. I'd actually have to get out of my house, but I'm willing to do that now. Love it. I think this sort of genealogy of covenants is really fascinating. And and in the corporate world, you do see some of this, but it's easier because at least for a long time, these things for public companies have had to be publicly filed and most of them are are easily available. There's no digging around. Well, depends how far back you want to go, but in many cases, you don't need to dig around. And as you know, there are some mapping projects. One of them is called Mapping Prejudice. I think that's focused on Minnesota. We have one in Iowa City, which I use when I teach my transportation law and policy class, where it actually brings up these original copies of deeds that include racial exclusions, for example. Yeah. And those are, I mean, that's the very interesting stuff is happening again with these mapping projects. Also, I think different states seem to be taking different approaches toward what to do about racial covenants that I think is interesting, you know, because I think it brings up broader questions about removal versus contextualization, basically. Is it actually worse to scrub the records and delete all the old ones? Does that mask a history of discrimination that is actually there? I think people are reckoning with that decision. You know, one other thing is one of my favorite books on this is Rick Brooks and Carol Rose have a book called Saving the Neighborhood about the history of racial restrictions, and particularly in Chicago, how long racial restrictions continued in the deed books after being, again, rendered unenforceable in Shelley versus Kramer in 1948, their argument is that these they served a signaling effect, that even though they were unenforceable, it was a way of basically saying who was and wasn't welcome in a neighborhood. And, you know, I, I think to a much lesser extent, that's also going on with sort of how people are speaking about multifamily housing and some of these nuisance covenants, which I think is another kind of interesting connection between the racial covenants and some of what I've worked on. Absolutely. So this has been fantastic. We could talk about this all day, but you probably have deeds to go read. Um, (laughs) So I'd love to transition now to our recommendation segment, appendices, where we go around and recommend something that we've come across recently, a tweet, a movie, a book, what have you, case. Molly, do you have an appendix? This question caused me so much stress. My initial thought which I'm not going to stand by. <laughs> the entire new Magic Mike movie revolves around land use. You I need know? to hear that. I think like our expand. listeners deserve yeah. <laughs> to hear this. He needs like a permit to operate his new dancing 
facility. I mean, so it's like, how do we get this through London zoning? <laughs> so anyway, I was watching it, I swear, only for the zoning stuff. But that's actually not my recommendation because I <laughs> pretty much wanted to die the entire time that movie was on. But um, but I did try to watch it for the land use. I don't know. So I feel like the, one of the more interesting articles I read recently is one of my students sent me. And so that was kind of what first came to mind after Magic Mike, which is about this vegan apartment in New York City. And I think it's, of course, interesting to me because I'm always interested in sort of this private law restrictions and what it portends. So basically, it's an apartment where there's no meat or fish in the lease. So you can't have that in the apartment. And I think that's just a really interesting new development. So there's a New York Times article about it that I can send. It sounds like you've seen it, Greg. So it's not quite really sort of urban planning related. But I think when it comes to sort of housing and leases being maybe the canary in the coal mine for some things that may end up playing a role in public law, that I find to be kind of an interesting recent article. Absolutely. I think most people who think about cities assume the relevant sources are public law. And most people who think about private law probably think that really onerous stuff in a lease is not going to be enforceable. But that still leaves a big swath of things like this that might be. Jeff? Molly, that was incredible. I want to talk a little bit about this paper called The Rise and Effects of Homeowners Associations by Wyatt Clark and Matt Friedman, which came out in the Journal of Urban Economics in 2019. They construct a near national map of homeowners associations in the United States. And what they find, I think, echoes a lot of what our conversation today has touched on. So the headline number is that 60% of newly built single family homes and 80% of homes in new subdivisions are part of HOAs. So they're incredibly prevalent and apparently incredibly popular. They appear to raise home values. So prices are higher in HOAs than outside HOAs. Interestingly, HOAs don't seem to be substitutes for public regulation. HOAs seem to be correlated with you know, these other measures that we have of public reg- local land use regulations. So where there's more of those, we get more HOAs. And then HOAs appear to be instruments of exclusion. So places that have HOAs tend to be more and more exclusive. I kind of like this article related to the conversation we have today. Seems like it touches a lot of similar themes. So that's my recommendation. That's great. Also playing off Molly's excellent paper, my appendix is something called the cul-de-sac development in Tempe, Arizona, which has been under construction for a little while is now opening up for leasing. It's attracted some attention in sort of urbanist quarters because it is being billed as a car-free development. It's on a light rail line in Tempe, which is a city of about 200,000 near Phoenix. I believe it's where the University of Arizona is based. So there's a large population of youngsters and recent graduates who stereotypically, I think, are more excited about walkable neighborhoods and so forth. And that's part of the vision of the place. And they have a bunch of partners like Bird, the scooter company, and others that are trying to advance this mission. But I think from a planning perspective, one question I've had is how are they able to build it without parking? Because there's virtually nowhere, certainly no metropolitan area in America, where you don't have to think about parking. And even if there isn't a specific parking requirement, that's going to be something that the city negotiates for before they grant you that approval, which is, that's a major innovation since the period covered by Molly's paper is that it's really doled out on a permission basis, the right to develop land in a metro area. So how do they get through that? And then I saw an article that said, 
that they have a requirement that residents not park a car either in the development. There is parking for visitors and they have some retail there. It's it's a mixed use, pretty dense walkable project, but they do have some parking. But if you live there, you have to promise not to do that. You also have to promise not to park within 400 meters of the complex. Supposedly, this is in the lease. I have not been able to find a publicly available version of the lease, but I'm fascinated, A, to see the terms and also B, to know if that was something that was negotiated between the city and the developer. I pulled the minutes from at least one of the sessions where the developer is explaining this and understandably, or I guess not surprisingly, some of the representatives on the government body had questions about this. And the developer basically just explained that that residents wouldn't be allowed to park there. There's not a lot of specificity in those minutes, but I'm just kind of curious how that was negotiated. And if that's something that could be a model in the future, I think a lot of places are going to be less open to this type of development than Tempe, and they would definitely demand ironclad protections. Then there would be the question of, you know, is the developer really going to discover if people park 200 meters from the development? And if so, are they really going to initiate you know, eviction proceedings? And, and can they credibly promise that? Or is that something that the city would take an interest in? Um, not that it ought to, but just again, through, from the perspective of getting this approved. So I th- there's a lot to dig into there. I'm really personally excited about this development. I think it's cool. I think a lot of the challenges we have in urban development stem from path dependency and status quo bias. And so to the extent you can kind of reset that from the beginning, including through the use of some private law instruments, potentially, that could be promising. So curious about that. Well, thank you so much, Molly. I learned a ton from that conversation and from your writing as I always do. And we're really grateful to you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It was really, really fun to chat with both of you. The views expressed on today's show are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, the Federal Reserve System, or any of the institutions with which the hosts or guests are affiliated. For Densely Speaking, I'm Greg Schill, joined by Jeff Lynn today and Molly Brady. Follow us on Twitter. We are at Densely Speaking. Let us know what you think of today's show. You can also find us on our personal accounts. I am at Greg underscore Shill. Jeff is at Jeff R. Lynn. And Molly is at Molly X Brady. Please take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Helps folks find the show. Thanks so much. And we look forward to hearing your thoughts.